but it's really common to confuse the best day of your life with the worst day of your life. And how would you feel like, like, just think right now, what was the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your entire life? And if you're listening to this podcast right now, I encourage you to think about this. What's the worst day of your life when someone wronged you the most, when God or the universe or your boss or whatever stuck it to you in a way that you just, you simmer about that today? How do you feel when you think about that moment? And now what if, hypothetically, here's my delusion. What if that was the best thing that ever happened to you? What would your story be? How would you feel when you think about that moment? Would you like that story better? Because here's the secret. Only you get to tell that story. No one else. Only you. You are the author of your story, your destiny. And your story from the past becomes your destiny. It becomes your future. So if you sharpen your pencil and write your story in a way that lifts you up, that drives you, that encourages you, it's going to give you a much brighter future. You're gonna live in a beautiful state. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm excited for another episode with Nick Stageberg. Nick Man, we got we got geeky. We got we we talk software and Q depths and Q velocities. And to be honest, I didn't know what those really meant when he explained them to me and how like Toyota does this manufacturing and the Q depth. I just thought it was the letter Q, but it was like how he's applied that to every single aspect of his life, how that is, you know, translated to success in dating, success in his, you know, remodeling business, how that's grown his private equity fund, and then how he's used that in every single aspect, including his parenting. And so like, that's just one of the nuggets that we have unearthed is like how to systematically create frameworks in your life to unlock unlimited amounts of success. So Nick is an amazing example of how you can create both logical and psychological solutions and be an overwhelmingly amazing leader in every single aspect of your life by having the right structure and the right systems and the right framework. So I'm excited for you to jump into this episode with my friend, Nick Stageberg. I think Nick is going to reveal some secret. Yeah. Uh, and actually I'm writing, I'm working on like a, a new copy post right now. It's called money, sex, and power. It's pretty good. Plus family. Now that I have your attention, uh, why does everybody want, you know, these <laughs> like you want more of all of those things. I'm like, I'm, I'm a, a mind reader. You want more money, sex, and power and, you know, include your family. I was like, Oh wow. Amazing. So, um, Anyway, Nick, awesome to have you on the show. I'm excited to have you on the show because you're one of those guys that I feel like is like a, you know, uh, under the radar, I wouldn't say like a ninja almost, like as far as just absolutely crushing it in, in 
so many areas of your life that you'd like systematically approach things and then just like crush it and crush it and crush it. And then all of a sudden be like, wait, what? Nick's taking down hundred million dollar deals. He's, you know, putting together massive funds. Like what? He's building entire subdivisions. So that's why I'm excited to have you on the show is because I don't think enough people get a chance to hear your story that I get to hear every time I'm around you. And I'm more and more impressed with you every single time I'm around you. So Nick, welcome to the show. That's a, that's a heck of an introduction, man. Uh, I, I hope I'm able to live up to those expectations you just said. I, I really appreciate that. And, and you know, I, I really feel the same way about you. I, you're, a, you're a person I've known for, for many years and uh, I, I have so much respect for you as, as an operator, uh, as a person who just kind of knows what they're doing. And uh, I'm excited to just have a conversation with a, with a fellow operator. Yeah, that's, uh, I was like, you know, the secret is, is like, I don't think anybody knows, but I don't know what I'm doing. I'm making it up as I go. Like, I'm just like a couple chapters ahead in the book. Like I remember years ago telling my wife, I was going to start a private equity company. And now I'm going to bring this up because you know, you know what you're doing and building out is like, she's like, how do you know how to do that? And I was like, I don't know. I'm like a couple pages in like Blackstone did it this way. So I was like, I'll just I don't think anybody knows what the hell they're doing. So, mm-hmm. although I feel like you know what the hell you're doing, ah, you're actually problem. crushing it on a big level. So like for the listeners, uh, give us a chance, you know, do your, your bio, do your background, you know, kind of how you came to this and you know what you're doing today and take a little bit of time to, to dive into some of the details because I, I find that interesting. And I think a lot of the audience also uh, finds that backstory interesting as well. Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in computer science and a bachelor's degree in ministry. You know, immediately out of college, I uh, you know wasn't quite sure which which path I was going to go. I decided to go the you know the the, the computer science route there and got uh, you know kind of a, a job at the the ground floor of a of a software development startup. And we went from uh, 13 million in venture capital to uh, to 100 million in private equity sale over the course of, of nine years. And our big uh, claim to fame was just that we didn't go bankrupt. We you know had an inception date of, of 06. So it was a medical banking software, kind of a financial uh, services, you know, fintech startup. And uh, the, those first five years were rough years. That was a that was a rough time to, to start that company. But then the, you know the four years after that, when things kind of finally stabilized in the finance sector, uh, is just kind of kind of explosive growth. It's uh you know it's a it's a, 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 a very involved story, but uh, ultimately, when uh, when they were about to sell the company, um, they they terminated me and seized my stock options. I, I can laugh about it today, but back then, I you know I felt like it was kind of the, the worst thing that that had ever happened to me. And um, you know, the I got into this real estate thing because in tech, you do a proof of concept. So if you're thinking about you know writing this you know huge piece of software, you write a really really small piece of software and just and just see how it works. And I was expecting this huge windfall when that first startup sold, and uh, and so I did a, a proof of concept. I did all kinds of research on you know what what do you do when you get this big you know windfall when you, when you win, the, win the lottery so to speak. Uh, and, and you know a lot of people win the lottery they end up you know bankrupt a couple of years later. How how do you you know wisely invest the you know that money? And uh, real estate investment was kind of what all my research kind of pointed to could, you know, offset the capital gains from that, you know, that that big windfall and uh, just kind of the safest, most consistent place to, to put money to invest. And uh, and so doing that proof of concept, we bought a my wife and I, who's you know my full full partner in our, our company. We bought a, a thirty five thousand dollar single family home and, uh, you know, she was uh, in med school studying to become a physician. She'd be in school all day. I'd work all day, you know, leading teams of engineers. And then we'd, you know, kind of clock out of our day job, clock into our, our job, you know, doing a sweat equity remodel on this home. And, uh, you know, she, my wife was miscarrying our first child as she was laying ceramic tile in this home. It was, you know, January in Oklahoma, below freezing. There's no working furnace in the house yet. So we we're trying to heat the house up with uh, halogen work lights enough that the, like the, the thin set would, would you know, would, would mix and stuff like that. I think everyone benefits from doing at least one, you know, sweat equity remodel and having some, you know, understanding for, for, you know, how hard that work is. It turned out that, you know, that, that proof of concept, um, you know, the, the, that big payday never, never came to be from that first startup. And, uh, you know, for, for a minute, it was a real poke in the eye to me. I was like, man, how insulting is it that I have this one 
stupid rental property that uh, you know was supposed to be a test for you know having this huge real estate portfolio in the future or something like that. And then when I got a little bit of time and kind of kind of got my head on straight, I realized that 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 property was kind of the most successful thing I had ever done. We did a you know a Burr business model on that back before the Burr was an expression. Um, so we we bought the house with cash, renovated it with cash, or more precisely, renovated it on credit cards because that was all the money we had to our name at the time. And to, to this day, we have the the February challenge where we live on as as little money as possible every February to uh, to remember that February after we finished that remodel when we just had no more money and uh, we were okay. Well, how do we avoid going to the grocery store for a month here? And so we we renovated it uh, with uh, with credit cards and sweat equity and then did a cash out refi and you know we we put in you know about fifty two thousand so we, we did about a seventeen thousand dollar remodel thirty five thousand dollar purchase price about fifty two thousand all in when we were done that that you know little single family home was worth maybe ninety thousand dollars somewhere in that territory and so in, in a matter of you know two months or whatever that took us to to renovate that home to place a new tenant or whatever we had just you know made uh you know forty thousand dollars or something like that and you know it, it once I kind of got clear about it I realized you know I've I've got all my money out of this thing I can go do another one. This thing is generating cash flow, paying down the loan. It's appreciating over time. You know, I, I've been really successful in the software world, but but this real estate thing, like this, is more financially successful than anything I've ever done in the software world. And um, and and from there, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I think my path is guided. I had an opportunity to to go do a startup for the Mayo Clinic. So you know, no, no stock options. I'm, I'm really just, just serving at this point. Really love that institution. Just an incredible heart an incredible culture. I got to, you know, uh, lead teams of engineers that uh, wrote software that, that literally saved people's lives. And, uh, that was a really, I don't know, healing experience for me to go from kind of like this, you know, frenzy of capitalism with this pressure cooker tech startup where I made a lot of, you know, rich people richer to just just serving. I mean, I had a very comfortable, you know, six figure salary and, and had the privilege to do some really cool stuff, but not not working for, for stock options or anything like that. And over the course of three years with that startup, we went from just a few people to 13 teams of engineers that I was leading. And we're doing about a third of all new development for uh, for the entire enterprise. And so if that was its own independent you know, concern that would have been another, you know, nine figure exit, essentially. Um, so it took, took me nine years the first time, three years the next time. And then during that three year period, just repeating and scaling that that very first property that we did. And we went from, you know, one of those to, I don't know, 20 of those, something like that, uh, got to, uh, I don't know, that, that elusive notion of financial freedom that a lot of people are looking for. Most people, when they say financial freedom, they're thinking, you know, 100K per year or 10K per month. Those are always kind of the magic numbers that people uh, mention when whenever I'm, I'm talking to investors and then, uh, you know, had a, had a huge turning point, you know, have you ever been to a Tony Robbins seminar before? So, uh, I need to take you to one here we've got one coming up here a day after tomorrow, you know, Tony gets you into a peak state and then, and then asks you quality questions. And, uh, you know, it, it just so happened that there was this, this seminar, you know, kind of right after I, I quit my day job and kind of retired on this, you know, financial freedom of like, you know, 20, 20 or so properties. And, uh, you know, Tony says, you know, raise your hand if you own a business. You know, everyone everyone raises their hand. That's just kind of the cohort that's that's drawn to that kind of event. And he says, you know, raise your hand if you're happy with the the performance or the success of your business. And you know, no one raises their hand because everyone in there has you know crazy expectations and standards, and they're not happy with it. And he says, I promise you that the reason why your business is not as successful as you think it should be is because you're not listening to your customers. You say you are. It's a, it's a trite phrase. Maybe you're doing customer satisfaction surveys, but I promise you the market is screaming at you for value and you're just telling yourself a really low quality story. You're saying, I uh, I don't know how to do that. I uh, that's, that's not what I got into this for. I'm not going to enjoy doing that. I can't make money doing that. And instead, you need to ask yourself higher quality questions like, um, you know, how could I meet this need? How could I serve these people? How could I create even more value? Who could I hire that would love to do that? What would be the business model, revenue model, pricing model, whatever that would let me make money doing that? And if you truly ask yourself those questions with the utmost sincerity, you will be fantastically successful. And, uh, you know, I mean, I felt like he was speaking directly to me as a, obviously like a universal message. You know, everyone feels that way. But the, the whole time, uh, Elaine and I were building this portfolio, uh, 
people would come to us and, and say, hey, you know, I see you're working on this financial freedom thing. I see you're, you know, I'd like bring coworkers to job sites and show them what we were working on in the nights and weekends and stuff. And they'd be so enamored with it. And they say, hey, you know, can I invest in one of these? How, how do I get involved? I want this financial freedom thing for my family. And uh, I actually had to make up a metaphor to turn the business away that, you know, I, I've got I've got four kids. I've got a big family. I like taking care of my own kids. I don't want to open a daycare. And, um, you know, and, and so Tony will get you psyched up and he'll say, just say yes. Just just call the last person you said no to and, and just say yes. So uh, I think someone had asked me about investing like a couple of days before that seminar. I called him up and I'm like, you know, I'm at this I'm at this seminar. This is kind of crazy, but I'm just saying yes. So let's let's invest in a deal together and uh, let's make it happen. And they're like, OK, just tell me what to wire the, wire the money. I'm like, no, 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 I haven't. I haven't told you how it's going to work yet. In fact, I don't even really know how this is going to work yet. I don't care. I, I just want to get in. I'm like, well, that. That's weird. And then I call the next person I said no to. And the call went the exact same way. And the next person. And the next person. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, how how much have I harmed people by saying no for all these years? And how much opportunity, how much, how much value have I failed to create? And uh, and so, you know, on that day is kind of where our, our you know, kind of modern, uh, you know, business model or whatever was born. And we just started uh, trying to create for as many people the thing that, that we were able to create for ourselves. So, you know, our, our business model really hasn't changed in the slightest. We buy, you know, properties that need TLC and fix them up and rent them. And, uh, and then we do a cash out refi to return capital to our investors uh, to do it all over again. And again and again, we've been doing this for 12 years now and we've we've never sold a property. So we really love what we do. Um, it's It's kind of a you know, it's kind of a boring business model. I don't know, doing doing the same thing over and over again, but we get a little better at it each time. And I love seeing the quality of our finished product improve all the time. And it's really neat kind of building this, you know, this this big snowball. So today we have uh, over a third of a billion in assets under management, which I, I kind of almost don't believe that saying out, out loud. You know, it's it's kind of a big number and uh, it's, you know, it's easy to get there when uh, when you don't sell anything and when you just put your tenants and, and, and your investors first. Uh, you know, we have a, you know, I think a lot of, Unique things that we do uh, that have kind of helped us along the way. We we focus on long term and we just we just treat people right. We we do the right thing and and so you know opportunities have never have never failed to find us just just by doing that doing that one thing. I think um, so. That's kind of what what brought us to uh, to today. So now we have properties in in Rochester, Minnesota is mostly where we're based. Uh, you know uh, we've got some properties in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, we love connecting with people like yourself. Uh, we try to go on podcasts. We uh, we don't do a ton of like uh, Facebook, you know, ads or anything like that. Uh, we just put ourselves out there. You know, we, we have a course, uh, 100% of the revenue of it uh, goes to charity and we just give away our whole business plan. And we kind of say, you know, if, if someone put us out of business with our own business model, like we, we think our business model makes the world a better place. So, you know, great. Uh, you know, just like how Elon Musk doesn't need to sell an electric car to everyone on earth. He just has to sell enough of them to kind of prove, uh, you know, prove what can be done. So lots of ways that uh, we just kind of put ourselves out there and uh, and then whatever value comes back to us, uh, you know, is kind of kind of what was meant to be. So that's kind of that's a that's I think that's a like the longest bio I've ever kind of shared of myself there. But you said feel free to dive into the details. That's kind of what brought us to our conversation today. Yeah, that's uh, that is awesome. There's there's a lot of additional questions that I have on that as far as so like you know your startup world. You said you do some fintech stuff, and so let's maybe take it back to that. You know, like what was that company? What was the you know the first business that you were working in? Yeah, um, you know I had a bunch of different uh, kind of I don't know, businesses. I did, you know, IT consulting. I had a car dealership, which, you know, is actually taught me a lot about negotiation and running a business and stuff. I had a, I had a bunch of, I was a car guy. So I just, it's kind of a hobby that became a business, but certainly the biggest one was that, that software development startup. And uh, we made a medical banking software and it was a really cool uh, company. You know, and uh, when you go to uh, to the hospital, you get like an explanation of benefits and you can't quite decipher it. And uh, you're not quite sure what the insurance company paid for or why you owe so much money. The crazy thing is though, the hospital gets a copy of that and the insurance company will bundle up like 10,000 of those into one paper document, mail it to the hospital with a check for $10 million and say, take it or leave it, buddy. And really hospitals in general don't really know what they're getting paid for. And suddenly there's just a shortfall in, you know, in, in operating cash and they're not sure why. So our software could 
could do OCR on those printed documents and figure out where the insurance company was maybe shorting the provider. Uh, you know, you said you're going to pay, you know, seven cents for a Kleenex and you paid six cents or you said you're going to pay, you know, $7,000 for this surgical procedure, but you only paid $6,000 and then automatically like appeal those claims and, and help help those providers reconcile, you know, what was coming in through their bank account with, uh, with you know, what the insurance company said should be coming through their bank account. Uh, and it was really cool. I definitely felt like a little bit of a Robin Hood or something like that. You know, our typical provider was, you know, just a, a small hospital, you know, uh, not one of the mega health systems. And they were just kind of getting uh, cheated by the insurance companies over and over again. Our software would identify all the, and the insurance companies knew it. And they just would engineer ways to eventually, because so, so my software today probably still adjudicates like 1% of all U.S. healthcare tra- transactions. This is how crazy it is. So the, the insurance companies started uh, introducing anti-counterfeit technology to their EOBs. No, no one's counterfeiting an EOB. The insurance companies figured out that we were OCRing the EOBs and that was helping the hospitals figure out they weren't getting paid. So the insurance companies started changing their processes to try to defeat our software so the hospitals couldn't reconcile. So it's just, I, I've got a million crazy stories I could share with you about that, but it was it was a, it was a heck of a ride and uh, I learned so much. You know, being able to lead a private equity firm today is completely a direct result of my experience in that, you know, tech startup world, bringing the, you know, kind of uh, uh, best practices, uh, standards of excellence, uh, you know, culture tools, and, and ultimately like like capital structures that, you know, were really successful in tech to, to real estate has been a huge unfair advantage for us. I've found that to be the case too, is like, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of joked about before we kind of got on about like, how was I going to start a private equity group? It's like, well, you know, I went off and I went to grad school and got uh, a degree in finance and international real estate. And it was basically like learning the language of private equity. It's like learning like the next level of the game. And so that the fact that you say those things is like, they're playing a different game than mm-hmm. you and I, like we're playing checkers, they're playing chess and, you know, or maybe it's multidimensional chess or something like that. So how much was the payout going to be that you're going to have before they did their kind of cram down? So, yeah, so here's the thing. Um, so we started the company, we ran through capital like water for the first five years and five years in our company was basically worthless. Uh, we had, I'm not going to say we, we lost the investor capital, just, I mean, we were, we were running through the, you know, uh, the, the great recession and we just, we weren't able to get on a, on a solid footing and we had to let go of a lot of people. Um, just it's a common thing in startups. And again, this is all the lessons, you know, that I learned then that informs, you know, the, the second and, and third startup that I've done, the, the people that can get you from one to 10 employees is different than the people that get you from 10 to 50 is different from the people that get you from 50 to 500. And uh, we had to cut them giant checks to let them go because they were owners in the company. And, uh, and so finally what we did was everyone from me all the way up to the CEO surrendered, you know, everything and put it into a pool. Um, so 25% of the company was owned by this LLC, which would be liquidated upon time of sale of the company and distributed to the staff based on a, a formula for, you know, for, for ownership based on position and years in the company and stuff. So who's to say exactly what that final payout could have been? I don't know for sure, but, you know, le- less than seven figures, pro- probably like mid, mid to high six figures, if I was to take a guess. I mean, truly the money is always in participating in the roll-up, right? So, so instead of taking that big payday, you take shares in the fund that, you know, buys you and then you can two, three, 10 X, whatever. And maybe you take kind of like a leadership role in that roll-up to help them replicate what they're doing with your company with others. Then you get even more. So that's actually the big payday there is that you now by, by having a piece of the pie, you can make that piece of the pie 10 times bigger. And that, and that was my plan. But so, so again, going back to like, like Tony Robbins, he'll, uh, He'll get you psyched up, right? For years, I had this giant chip on my shoulder that I was going to succeed to spite these people that like cut me out of this, you know, not even seven figure payday. And, you know, whether I realize it consciously or not, like all of my success was going to be to spite them. And I think there's a lot of people out there walking around with a big chip on their shoulder from their their dad or from, you know, from someone that they're just going to show them. And uh, Tony will get you psyched up and he says, uh, you know, I'm just going to ask you a question. I'm not saying this is true, but just what if it were, you will rarely confuse a average day in your life with the best day of your life, but it's really common to confuse the best day of your life with the worst day of your life. 
And how would you feel like, like, just think right now, what was the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your entire life? And if you're listening to this podcast right now, I encourage you to think about this. Just pause it for a second. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your entire life? What's the worst day of your life when someone wronged you the most, when God or the universe or your boss or whatever, uh, you know, uh, stuck it to you in a way that you just, you simmer about that today. How do you feel when you think about that moment and now what if, just, just saying what if, hypothetically, here's my delusion. What if that was the best thing that ever happened to you? What would your story be? How would you feel when you think about that moment? Would you like that story better? Because here's the secret. Only you get to tell that story. No one else. Only you. You are the author of your story, your destiny. And your story from the past becomes your destiny. It becomes your future. So... If you sharpen your pencil and write your story in a way that lifts you up, that drives you, that encourages you, it's going to give you a much brighter future. You're going to live in a beautiful state. And with all sincerity today, I think that that was the best thing that ever happened to me, getting getting fired from that startup, because it was a, it was a pressure cooker tech startup. I My first baby was born, and I worked about 30 hours straight after my baby was born. So I was there for the delivery. We brought the baby home. I'd already been up for a day. And then there was like a disaster uh, at work that, you know, I had to like participate in, in recovering from. And this happened pretty often. We were in a, you know, startup where we were growing so fast that things were just breaking all the time. And so I think I was up for like 50 hours straight. And uh, and that was not unusual. That, that it was just, you know, that's, that's the tech pressure cooker culture. And I had all this intent to like get this big payday and then to like roll it up into the next thing. And the next thing I would have been chasing that forever. And you know, it's kind of crazy to say this, but today, like a million dollar payday, it's just not that much money to me. I mean, I, that, that sounds absurd. I know, but it's just like, I might make that in a good month in, in, in my life today. I only have this life that I have today because I have consciously decided that getting pulled out of that pressure cooker ecosystem is the best thing that, that ever, like I, I held on to it so tightly that it slipped through my fingers. God had to take it from me and I had to rewrite my identity. And I, I mean, I hope for people who are listening, I, I hope this resonates with you. I think that most people, they've got something they're hanging on to, something that they think was taken from them. And really it was God or the universe or whatever you believe in serving you, loving you, saying, you know what, you I have to take this from you because there is so much more out there waiting for you. you. You just have to let go of this thing first. And and thank God that I was forced to let go of that whole tech Ponzi scheme, frankly. And just by crazy chance, it led me to this whole you know real estate thing that, that I'm doing today. And uh, there's no way I would be doing this today if that had not happened to me back then. So that's, I don't know, that's, I, I hope, I hope someone, you know, on this call is, is impacted. Someone listening to this is impacted by that. What, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? And, and what if, I'm not saying it is, because there's some bad things that can happen to you, but what if it was the best thing that's ever happened to you? How would that change your story? How would you write your story? And how would that make you feel better in the moment today? I love that because, you know, I've said that I, I wrote that in my book, like one of the, like, you know, going from being a millionaire to negative net worth, sitting there crying on the street corner, like, dear Lord, can I be worth no money? Yes. You know, cause zero would be better than the negative that I am, but the overdrawn bank account, the negative net worth, the debt that I owe, but it was, and it's specifically what you just said, the reframing is nobody has your past history. Nobody knows your story. It's own. And how many times, and I would say 95, you know, 98% high percentage of the disagreements that my wife and I have are about languaging and saying things negative. Like my wife will say some of these negative things. And I just, it like, it, it like, no, like that's not okay. Like we cannot say that things. And so because you, you become the words that you say to yourself. And so you have the ability and call it the human condition is to manipulate your own memories. And I like that you said that, like the, the scripting out, like you have the ability to rewrite your own story and be like, how is this for my benefit? How does getting kicked in the teeth, getting dragged around, getting the million dollar payout, get those other things 
actually open up an entire and create a paradigm shift. And I, I think one of the, the blessings that I heard in your story was the fact that your ladder to success was on the wrong building. Like you were in the wrong vehicle for what was Nick's God-given purpose on this planet. And it was not to be in a tech startup world because what happens, you are going to chase the hedonic treadmill up and up and up and up. And you are never going to be able to free so many other people and their, their financial freedom numbers or whatever that was for them or whatever you're calling it. And so like, Hey, you needed to be, God needed to nudge you over there a little bit and be like, no, you get crammed down. You're not part of a tech startup anymore. That's right. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, Two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guest on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. So I wanted to dive into a little bit and take you to, you know, and I don't know if you share this out there in public, the way that you systematically met your wife. Sure. And your dating process and how you like, and I think it has to do with your mindset and the way that you think. And maybe that's from the the computer science or just your engineering, like your thought process is that you create and had, it was a fascinating story. When I heard it, I was like, that's super awesome. So tell me how you ended up meeting your wife. So uh, I'm, I'm an open book. I'm happy to, uh, to to chat about all this. And this is, uh, you know, uh, to- totally random. But uh, Mo Gadot, I ran into him. He's like an expert on, on happiness, like a, a famous author. He says he's putting putting my dating algorithm into his next book on like a like a tool for happiness. So ho- hopefully it helps a lot of people. I didn't think it was that fancy then. I just thought about it like um, I think that who you choose as your partner is probably like the most important decision you make in your entire life. More important than, you know, where you choose to live, uh, what your chosen career is. Like you can change those things pretty easily. You know, at least at least with my values, it's it, it's not an easy thing to change your partner. I think that you, you know, you're, this is an alliance with a person to have children, to, you know, to build a legacy, to build a dynasty. And, and that's that's kind of a somewhat immutable decision that you make in life. And, uh, and I thought, man, uh, I should probably be really deliberate about this decision. So if I was, you know, approaching this as like a business problem, how would I try and, you know, I think of my wife as like my, my customer. Um, how, how could I go find like the best customer I could ever find? So, uh, so I got onto, uh, you know, multiple dating sites. I did, uh, you know, A-B testing, uh, just like Amazon might do with a, a change to its website or photos for a product. And I tried different uh, ad copy and different photos and stuff. I mean, I, I approached it just like, a, just like a marketing thing. I got a, you know, professional, well, not professional photographer, but I got like high, high quality photos done. I think a lot of people just have like a phone, you know, a camera phone selfie. And I'm like, well, is this going to attract a high quality, you know, mate? You know, just kind of putting whatever, whatever out there. I was incredibly scientific about it. And then I'm a big fun, fan of uh, like uh, sales funnels and, and, and you know, uh, lead lead conversion pipelines. So uh, my quota, my 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 goal for myself was to go on a date with a different woman each weekend, uh, and I did that for about three years. Uh, and I, I didn't you know didn't quite hit that quota. Maybe I went on a date with like like a hundred different women. I had what I called the the catch and release program. So I had a commitment to myself. I I would not have sex with any of these women. You know that's just part of my values or whatever. But I knew that if I if I was intimate with these women. I would want to stay with them for like the wrong reasons, essentially. And I was already 
queuing up like my date for the next for the next weekend. Just like a good salesperson, you're always queuing up your next lead. Otherwise, you kind of you know perseverate on the leads you have and then bemoan the quality of your leads or whatever. You know the problem with lead quality is lead quantity. So I was always kind of queuing up the next date, and uh, it was honestly a little a little demoralizing, you know, uh, in, in the depths of year three, because I don't know, I just wasn't finding a mate that I felt like was up to my standards that kind of checked all those boxes. And, uh, and, and I was kind of, it was, it was almost challenging to my identity or whatever of like, well, maybe, maybe I should just settle or whatever. And then, uh, and then finally I, I met my wife. And, uh, so my, my typical format was I met at the same place. I met for coffee on a Saturday afternoon. I tried going on dinners and I realized that was like super high commitment. And usually you figure out like in, you know, 10 minutes, like, Oh, this isn't a good fit. And, you know, so, so you make it short, but then you can like the coffee date can go for a while if it's going pretty well you can have like a follow-up date and stuff. So I had kind of like an algorithm for that too. And, uh, so my, my, my wife, when I met her, our first date was, was 13 hours long. And, uh, and that was, uh, that, that night was the last night we spent apart. So, uh, she kind of like, you know, moved in the next day and, uh, I gave her a, a ring on our 30 day anniversary. And then, uh, I married her, uh, 13 months after we met. Cause I, I think you should, you know, experience every season with someone before you marry them. But, uh, um, when you know, you know. And because I had, uh, so, so I believe, so, so our team walks like 1000 properties per year. We do a staggering amount of legwork. Cause I think you have to look at a lot of bad deals to know when you have found the good deal, like it, you know, it in seconds, you're like, Whoa, th- th- this is a deal. I don't need to look at a spreadsheet. Like I know this is a deal because I've looked at all the bad deals. And by going on a date with a hundred women that were, you know, not a good fit, the moment I met my wife, like I knew she was the one there was, there was zero doubt in my heart. And she's just, she's a lion and she, uh, you know, keeps me on my toes and makes me a better man, uh, holds me to a higher standard than I could ever hold myself, uh, is very responsible for, you know, my, my success today. You know, I kind of joke, you know, I would be like a millionaire on my own, but because of my wife, you know, eventually I'll be a billionaire because she, she just pushes me and, and always will, will always hold me to a higher standard than I, than I, you know, where, where I am today. And, uh, I think I got exactly exactly what I expected, uh, from that, uh, from that whole process. So yeah, I thought, I thought it through and came up with kind of a few rules essentially, I think to, to hone in on the most optimal, you know, uh, outcome. And I think it works pretty darn well. I think I, I think I won that game. That's, and I, I love that it, it was, um, so for the listeners, you know, the people that are seeing that, that it was just how applying exactly sales funnel like the the like in even creating the nuance of like where you wanted to meet so like a a lower risk thing of like having coffee on a saturday you know be like well you're not sure like oh we're gonna you know run back and and have sex or go to bed but like Mm -hmm. no it's like coffee on a saturday like no it's not and so it's like even that framework and and creating to because a lot of people are you know, myself weak. And when it comes and you put yourself in a bad situation, so it'd be like, you know, Hey, and maybe if people are drinking or, you know, in a situation, you'd be like, I didn't want to do that, but I was drinking. So now I eat all the carbs or I have all the pizza or, you know, whatever the situation. So it's like even understanding the framework in which you could present yourself at best. And then be like 10 minutes, 15 minute coffee and be like, yeah, this is not going to work. You know, see ya. You know, and I was like, I just love that. And that was to me very, very telling on the way that you think and approach so many other things to like your levels of success in business to me are like, yeah, duh. Mm-hmm. But what is crazy to me is how little people actually think about things in those first order principles. And it's actually something that I think is I've heard more in engineers or software developers or like, you know, programming people, because they're always thinking of things in that first order of magnitude of like first principles, you do this and then everything else kind of falls in line. And so then it's like, oh, you do this with a a house, do a value add things, X, Y, and Z and be like, oh, hey, exactly that. And now it's just like, I can repeat this process. So I was like, I know you do a few different things. You have a private equity company, but how have you applied that in other areas of your life or other pieces of business? Or have you done that and, and use those same principles? And how has that been successful to other aspects of your 
you know, investing or, or personal existence. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very aggressive in systematizing, you know, every aspect of my life. So, you know, we've got uh, my wife and I have, have, have four kids, uh, seven, five, uh, three and zero. And it's uh, it's a lot of work. It's it's more work having four young children than having a third of a billion in assets under management, as crazy as that sounds. So we have an embarrassing amount of help. And we systematize pretty much everything in our home life so that it's all, you know, we have a, we have a private chef, we have a house cleaner, we have a nanny, we have, you know, school so that everything is built around the notion that when I am present, I'm fully present. I'm not there washing the dishes, kind of asking how my kid is doing. Like I am there fully present with them saying, how was your day today? I want to know how your day was today. What can I do to just be your father in this moment in, in the most profound way possible? And it only happens with systems. You, you don't, get that kind of quality time on accident, especially if you have a lot of kids and you have other other obligations. Uh, in every aspect of our of our business, it's systematized. So so as the CEO of our company, uh, I only have one key performance indicator. So so every week uh, the team gets together and uh, there's just a couple of KPIs. So in tech, you learn that uh, Q depth and Q velocity are the only two metrics you need to manage any work stream, so to manage work in progress and how quickly you're getting that work done or, or whip and, and, and flow. So my only metric is to measure the, the happiness of our our team. Uh, so on a scale of one to 10, every single member of my, my team has to rate their, I ask them to rate their energy, their happiness, and if they feel valued in their work, because those are all kind of asking the same thing, but in, you know, in different ways. And, and there's often discrepancies in their scores. Like I'm a one out of 10 with energy because I was up all night with my kid, but I'm still a, you know, a six in happiness and like a nine in, in feeling valued in, in my work. And I can track those trends over time. Um, you know, our maintenance team, how many tickets outstanding are there? How many tickets have we closed? Our leasing team, how many, uh, you know, vacancies are there? What's our, what's our economic vacancy and how many leases have we secured in the last week? In, in every aspect of our company with just two metrics, we can typically tell how that area of the company is doing. And I would, I would consider this the, the epitome of leadership. So, uh, you know, one of my mentors runs this like health retreat. And for years, the scales, uh, you know, people would weigh in. There's these, like these scales that get kicked around on the ground and get broken and they'd have to replace them. And it was just absurd. Like they'd try to move the scale back and then just somehow these, these scales would get kicked around and, and get broken. And so one day after, after years of replacing scale after scale, they just put a little masking tape square on the ground and the scale would magically stay in that spot and they never had to replace a scale ever again. I believe that is the epitome of leadership. You cast a vision so clear, no words are necessary. They didn't have to tell people coming to work on their health to put the scale in the box. They didn't have to tell the staff members to move the scale back in the box. Everybody knows here's a box and, and everyone has this itch to just put the thing in the box. That's where it's supposed to go. We're going to keep it there. And this is how we live in an orderly world. And I promise you, uh, you know, there's about 20 key performance indicators that we use to run our entire company. You know, the number of people on our mailing list, the number of uh, investor phone calls that uh, my wife and I have done in the last week. Uh, that's another uh, key performance indicator for our, our marketing. If I added a metric to that, to that column, um, so let me think of something. You know, so right now we track the number of like actual dollars that have come into the fund, like like have been wired in. We don't currently track the number of like commitments. So people like commit and then they have to sign paperwork and stuff. So that, so as much as possible, you want to track lead indicators, not lag indicators. I bet I could add a column to my KPI dashboard right now of number of commitment dollars that have come in in the last week. I would never need to explain a single thing to any one of my staff. It would just magically get filled in. In fact, I bet someone would go in and try to backfill that without me asking to do it because they'd see all these other columns that have all this other really neat historical data. And that thing would suddenly start getting better. Somehow, I don't know how, more money would start coming in in the commitment column because people just can't help when there's a that, that, that masking tape square on the floor. You got you to put the thing in the box. Uh, I believe that's the epitome of leadership and people like I am. a I, I love leadership. I'm a student of leadership. I'm actually going to a leadership retreat here in a couple of days this week and inspiring people and motivating people. But at the end of the day, it does come down to systems. It does come down to systems. You, you, if you create a really good, really simple, really clear, obvious system where people know what the expectation is and how to meet it, people are elated to be able to do that. And it, it, it probably comes down to just a couple of KPIs, probably just two KPIs for anyone. And it's 
what's their work in progress or what's their queue depth and what's their velocity or, or how, you know, flow, flow through that queue. That's how Toyota, you know, prints cars out of a factory. That's how all software is developed in modern software, software engineering uh, shops. That's how I learned all these principles, by the way, is from, from my career in software engineering. And I would say, you know, tech tends to be kind of ahead of the curve. But when we bring these, these principles to real estate, like we, I mean, we, we, we run circles around our, our competitors, you know, like they, they don't understand how it is. We, we have 65 rehabs in flight right now. I know that exact number because it's a key performance indicator. I know how many rehabs we completed last week, how many are in, in progress right now. Uh, again, Q depth and Q velocity. Most people would say, you know, you can't run more than, you know, a dozen job sites without kind of losing your mind. We got 65 of them going, and no one, no one's running around like like crazy because we have we have good systems and processes for tracking it all. So, people love it. People love having having really good systems and processes. You just have to put it out there. There's one of the things that I recently discovered is, and, and maybe this is to throw a little bit, if it's a logical solution, someone's probably already tried to do it. What you're talking about is is psychological solutions. So the masking tape on the ground is a psychological solution. It is just a framework that it creates is that mentally people need to put it in the box. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is like true kind of like next level things is the psychological solutions or distractions. And I'll give you an example is like people were upset at the, the, the subway trains and stuff in, in London. And so the logical solution is make faster trains. The psychological was they just put a indicator of how long until the next train was coming. And so because the fact that people didn't actually care about how fast the trains came, they didn't like the not knowing when the next train was coming. And so because you may walk down to that subway, you know, you know, landing flat, you know, platform, whatever at a different time. And so then you just like, ah, when the heck is this coming? So the masking tape box that says, put it here, the next train is coming in 60 seconds, but there's also in additional layers of stuff that you could do like weights, times on an elevator, putting mirrors in the elevator. So people are looking at themselves and distracted or like, what if you put, pretty uh, attractive people in the elevator along with them. They'll be like, I want it to be slower. Like, actually, like, wait a minute. Like, I, I whoa, let's make pretty this a slower there. ride. Like, interesting people that I can talk to. So again, it is the the next level of, of, of psychological and psychology solutions that take, but that only works if you have the framework of the logical solutions already kind of like dialed in. And now how do you supercharge and 10x your performance. So I wanted to go back to, and actually the logical things that you're talking about is explain to me like the Q depths and the Q velocity and kind of the whips and flows, because that is like lightly heard some of those things, but I don't have the depth of knowledge. And so like, how can you explain that to dumb people like me that are not software people? And I'm like, Q depths, hold on, let me note that. So yeah, I wish I had like a whiteboard or something handy here. But so all work is a, a piece of a value pipeline. So Toyota takes glass and steel and they spit out cars. And there's a bunch of value creation that happens along the way. And you can you can map that out. And and you you create a little pipeline. It's, it usually goes from left to right is, is you know, you, your start of your value pipeline to the end of your value pipeline. Value is created. You know, uh, there's less value on the left side, more value on the right side. And then all along that pipeline, you have you have queues. So at this stage in the assembly line, we're uh, we're making the engine. At this stage in the assembly line, we're putting the windshield on. At this stage in the assembly line, we're putting the wheels on. And then when we get to the end, uh, we've got a whole car that we can we can sell. And there we've we've created value. This is a really these are really easy concepts to understand in like a like a manufacturing analogy. I think it, it just makes sense to people. Um, these are really critical concepts in software because. Imagine you're making cars, but no one can see or touch any of the cars. It's all abstract. It's all code. And uh, you might be working on a bug and you work on it for an hour, you work on it for a month, but you get stuck on it and you don't, you don't have progress either way. So, so managing work in progress is, is really critical. So if you have 20 cars that are stuck at the station to do, uh, to put the windshield on, and you've only got one car stuck at the station to do the wheels, and you've got, you know, zero cars where you're making the engine, you know, you might need to like reallocate resources from the engine uh, team to the, to the windshield team. 
right? And then uh, adding uh, velocity to that is uh, gives you a whole other dimension to it. So um, you just need to track like in the last, uh, it's called an iteration. So maybe it's an hour, maybe it's a day, maybe it's a couple of weeks, whatever, just some, some period of time, any arbitrary period of time, how much work has gone through that queue. So for example, we have about 110 maintenance tickets in our queue right now. I know that because it's it's on my KPI board and we, we had our KPI meeting today. So I, I know how many maintenance tickets there are. That's pretty good. We got a thousand doors. We've only got a uh, hundred maintenance tickets. If we were closing 10 tickets per week, we should be pretty nervous about that, right? Because we know that it's going to take us 10 weeks to close out all the tickets that are there right now. If we had closed out a thousand maintenance tickets in the last week, our queue depth is actually probably too low. There's, we would probably have too many maintenance technicians, and we, we should not hire any more maintenance technicians because people are probably not, not being fed work optimally. So you, you can't I can't tell you what the magic formula is for knowing what uh, queue depth versus velocity is, is optimal. There are a ton of like mathematical formulas out there to actually help you figure that out. Lots of good tools out there to help you figure that out. But just intuitively, if you track velocity and, and depth, queue velocity and queue depth, uh, very quickly, you should be able to figure out like what's a you know what's a what's a reasonable amount of depth so uh, we don't ever have a maintenance ticket that's going too long. That's that's another metric we track by the way is how long since our last untouched maintenance ticket. How, what's our our long what which maintenance ticket has gone the longest time since we've had a contact with it and when seven days is our our target and we almost never have a, a ticket across a thousand units that is untouched for seven days. And that's, that's, a, that's a KPI we track, and so we end up hitting that target. So you know, right this second, having a queue depth of 100 and a velocity of 100, that means we're, we're, we're resolving every single ticket. You know, like in, intuitively, it should make sense to you that if 100 tickets have come in and we've closed 100 tickets and 100 tickets are waiting, it kind of makes sense that we have probably touched every ticket about every seven days because we get through seven days of work, you know, at, at a time. Essentially, we 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 burn through an entire seven day period of work in that in that time interval. So that's those are the basic concepts uh, of of queue depth and and queue interval. And you can apply that to any aspect of your life. Uh, you know, do, doesn't matter if it feels kind of esoteric or or synthetic. You can easily figure out, you know, what. So how many people are are there on our uh, on our mailing list, and then how many people have we added to that mailing list like in the last week suddenly we have the ability to project like how quickly our mailing list might grow in the future you know how long does it take for us to uh or, or yeah how many <laughs> this is this is one way to think about it like how, how long does it take us to like get our kids ready in the morning uh you know we're thinking about having more kids like would we reach some sort of critical breaking point do we need to like hire more staff to help us get the kids ready in the morning to know i mean that, that seems kind of silly but i apply these same practices to every aspect of my life and once you get good at it you can do these analyses in seconds you can look at a very complex system like like your assembly line can only spit out cars as fast as like your windshield team can put windshields on the car it doesn't matter if you're building engines this fast your your whole company it doesn't matter how how quickly we lease units if we're not closing out maintenance tickets fast enough no one's going to renew their lease no no one wants to stay in a place where the maintenance tickets don't get answered so it, it's very easy to see where the bottlenecks are in your value pipeline by just looking at queue depth and queue velocity and it makes it really easy and simple and and unemotional to manage complex systems i can go to my maintenance team and say hey guys uh, we've got too many maintenance people. Does anyone want to go do leasing? Because we've got a million vacancies here in our value pipeline, but not a lot of maintenance tickets. And when you explain it in that context, it makes perfect sense to people. No one, no one has ever looked at our, our value pipeline and disputed it or had any negative feelings whatsoever. In fact, most people, top performers love to get measured. Now, poor, poor performers, they hate to get measured, but you, you can almost immediately tell if you've got good staff or not the moment you start actually measuring these things in a systemic way, because the top performers, they're kind of rubbing their hands together saying, hey, what do my stats look like this week? They're excited to put up big numbers, and the people that maybe shouldn't be a member of your team, they're nervous, or they skip those meetings, or find ways to not have their KPIs be presented, and that's how you know that they're not a top performer. Yeah, there's... I actually have to introduce you to one of my other buddies. His name is Nick. He does multifamily. So, you know, Nick's apparently they're brilliant. And uh, they went through that and specifically what you were kind of talking about, like maintenance and turn times, uh, unit turn times. And he was like, here's one of the things that most like property managers track is like the cost that it takes to turn a unit. 
And so they're dragging like, Hey, $5,000, you know, and you know, as our number, maybe it's 3000, whatever they've arbitrarily assigned to, this is what we are budgeting. And so what happens is that they may to make sure they hit budget. And especially in the last year or so construction pricing has been bananas on materials and other things. And so like they're, they're able to get it back to that budget number, but maybe it took them two weeks longer. Yes. To get to that budget number. And so then they are starting to track out exactly like what that down units cost is and then how to create it in a more dynamic way is like you can pay $6,000, but if you get it done faster and how do you incentivize the turns faster? Because you're like, I'm going to get a whole extra month of rent or I'm going to be, you know, so again, again, your effective occupancy. And I heard that you kind of talked through that was, is like, now, how do you do that on a portfolio of multiple properties? And then they put that into their software program that is like big time property managers are not tracking this stuff, like in the, in the real estate industry. And they're like, dude, there's some of the software guys are like, you guys are like cavemen. Like you guys are out here beating rocks on sticks, you know, uh, like I don't understand what you're doing because the software world is like on version 3.0 or 5.0. And you guys are out here like there's just so many things in the industry that I'm just like, yep, it is like it's so, so ripe for disruption in so many different aspects. So um, I know that, you know, we're the exact same thing, by the way, it costs us right now $77,400 per month in down unit burn on our on our dashboard i do not track cost on our pipeline because humans tend to skew their psychology and like a feeling of scarcity to cost but really just having that unit down is hands down like it's an insane cost that lost revenue opportunity so we we have that right there on our dashboard we've got 65 rehab units down and it costs us 77,400 per month and i make the rehab team perform that calculation I make them be the one, not not like the leasing team that maybe knows more. They have to go talk to the leasing team and say, how much would you lease this unit for? But they have to add it up and they have to wince every week and say, yeesh, 77 grand a month? What can we do to speed these things up? Dude, that that is awesome. Because that's, and that's the thing is like, you're talking first principles of, of how to turn and, you know, applying that to multifamily, you know, that you can do that in a lot of different areas. So I can talk to you for, for hours and we actually have, we've, we've talked for hours and many, many different times. So I want to make sure to, uh, you know, honor your time, but I, first I want to tell you how grateful I am for you, the way that you show up, you're, you showing up on this call, just like you show up in person, you show up, you're very authentic as, as a person and be very transparent. And I gain a tremendous amount of value from you every single time I'm around you. And, and I, I think that the, the listeners also will gain, you know, uh, significant amounts of value from this and from this episode. And that's a part of the reason that I do this is like, I have these conversations sitting down with Nick and, you know, wherever in Atlanta or Tahoe, or, you know, a lot of different places that we've hung out. And I'm just like, man, more people need to hear, hear what you're doing, because I think that God has given you a certain, you know, skill set and, and purpose out and in, in to, to, to broadcast out that out to the world. So I'm very, very thankful for you, Nick. I have a couple of quick Thank you. Likewise. rapid fire questions. They don't have to be rapid fire on your, your responses. So um, what is I didn't really prep you for this. What is the one thing that you have spent money on in the last six months that has given you back the highest return on your time? Um, we just hired a personal chef. So that one's pretty good. Without that, was, we actually had to like privately negotiate that deal. We, well, this is a fun one. So I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of my frugality. So for years I've been driving around a, a 2012 Honda Odyssey with a salvage title. And then I went to this uh, this meetup, and one of my friends uh, that, that met me there, he was like, you know, I just bought a new Tesla Model X Plaid, uh, and I know you're like the minivan guy. I just want you to borrow my Tesla for a few days, just as just as a gift. It's like the most spontaneously generous thing a person's. Yeah, one hundred fifty thousand dollar, you know, thousand horsepower car. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I'll drive that around for a few days. Why not? You know, he, he literally just picked it up from the dealer lot, like, you know, on the way to to meet me. Uh, so I drove it around for a few days, and I'm like. 
yeah, I got to I gotta get one of these. And so I now have one of those. And it is actually a pretty massive time saver. Uh, I remember being like in, like this was in Atlanta, and I was in some thick Atlanta traffic, 14-lane highway, and it was on full autopilot, driving better than I possibly could. I actually took a nap for a good 10 minutes. And it just, it just the, the, the automatic driving is very good. So uh, I have bought back a ton of my time with that, that self-driving feature. Maybe I'm just deluding myself to, uh, to get a fancy car. I I don't think you're supposed to do that. I don't, I think that's actually says don't fall asleep. Do not make sure to maintain. Well, I mean, you know, kind of stop and go traffic. So, uh, I think it's fine, but yeah, it, it, uh, it's very, I, I I normally just text and drive. I don't sleep and drive, but it's, it's a better driver than I am on, on the highway anyway. That's awesome. What book have you gifted most to other people and why? So, uh, uh, that's the alchemist, uh, by Paul Quelho. And uh, we have a like like our, our public half bath, you know, in like the main living room of our area. It's a themed bathroom, so it has like prints and uh, quotes from the alchemist on all the walls. As you're like there using our bathroom, you know, sitting on the throne, you get to read some quotes and stuff like that. And there's just like copies of the alchemist sitting there for you to to take. Uh, so we're kind of like uh, I, I don't know what to call that evangelical about that book or something like that. But it's just a great book. It's a short book, really quick, easy read, all about. Uh, you know, discovering your personal legend. So, you know, reflecting on kind of my experience with my first startup, you know, the, the alchemist would tell you that, uh, you know, in, in order to, to achieve, in order to be free to achieve anything, you have to lose everything. And uh, there's just a lot of beautiful, I, I read that book on audiobook as I was driving, you know, I, I we were loading up our moving truck. We were, we were re- relocating from my wife's residency uh, I had just been fired from my previous job. Like as I was loading up the, the moving truck, they fired me. And then I read that book as we were driving to our new home and, uh, just a very transformational book in my life. And I can't, can't, can't recommend the alchemist enough to anybody. It's a dangerous book. You might be inspired to, uh, to disrupt your life in some profound ways. So be, be careful before you pick up that book. I love that because what got you here is not going to get you there. Mm. And you need to sometimes have external forces, mm-hmm. you know, help nudge or guide you towards those other things. So, you know, uh, I, I know that you have a fund that you're raising money for, and, and maybe by the time this actually airs, it's closed, but I'd like to, you know, um, what, what are you you know promoting? How can people connect up with you? Maybe they want to invest alongside you or they want to get some of that education, the courses that you've had or mentioned, or just like, Hey, Nick, uh, I loved hearing you. I want to, you know, get on a call and hang out, you know? So tell me where people can reach out to you. And then what is the ask of the audience? Sure. Uh, you know, I really appreciate you being so deliberate, Jake. That's, that's awesome. People try to like sneak a cell into a podcast or whatever. And you know, my goal is just to connect with as many people as possible. So you can go to meetblackswan.com, meetblackswan.com. Uh, there's just a link to my calendar there if you want to block a time on my calendar. All the different ways that you can uh, connect with uh, with my wife and I. So um, we have a, we have a course, and uh, it's a it's a pay what you can model. 100% of the revenue goes to charity. That's just a, a passion project project that we have. We uh, so the the coolest thing I've done this year is we we built a school. We took an abandoned 40,000 square foot office building, and over the summer had teachers and parents doing sweat equity, you know, painting, ripping up carpet, and we converted it into a school. And the kids just moved in here a few months ago and uh, just using my wife and I's expertise and then, you know, money from uh, from from the course and, and some of the other things we do. The private equity fund, 5% of our profit from the fund goes to charity and 5% of our profit from the fund goes to a profit share for our staff. So we've got, we've got a course, we call that the uh, the cookbook. So we give away our whole business plan there. And uh, if you want to, if you're an active investor, if you're wanting to, you know, to, to do your own thing, please go take our course. We, we give away all our secrets there all the way down to the exact light fixture that we install, the exact type of flooring we install, every, you know, how we get the loans that we get. We're, you know, we're, we're hyper detailed about that. And then we have our private equity fund. We call that the restaurant. So uh, if you really like the recipe, but you're like, you know, it seems like these people know what they're doing. I'd rather just go get it the rest 
restaurant. That's the private equity fund. And that course is basically our operations manual for our whole team here. So you get to see, you know, front to back how how we run our company and how we're able to uh, to, to create value for our investors. Um, we have a, a private equity fund. It's closing December 23rd. So I think by the time this, uh, this airs, that will be closed. Uh, but we'll probably have another one available next year. Uh, we use the same business model over and over again. We're very boring that way. So if you want to, uh, you can, you know, express interest in that for, for a future fund. There'll be an option on our website there. Um, we have a really cool fund. There's no fees whatsoever. Uh, and 100% of the profit from the from the fund goes to our investors until they get a full return of capital. And it's a 50-50 split after that. I call it the, uh, the lemonade stand model. If you open a lemonade stand with your kid, that might be the business model you adopt. I'm going to help you buy some lemons and some sugar, and then I need to get my money back, and then we'll split the profit. And, uh, you know, I find it, you know, if you kind of do do the math on the different investment opportunities out there, it tends to be kind of the, the most mathematically favorable model for for most investors in most most circumstances. So we have lots of, uh, lots of happy investors who've been reinvesting with us year after year after year, they might be on like the third investment, you know, with the same bucket of capital because they invest to get that capital return, invest and get that capital return, invest and get that capital return. Um, so those are just some of the cool things that we have going on right now. But we do tons of free education events. We try to do something almost every week, certainly every month, typically maybe three a month or something like that. To, you know, we just get on calls to answer, answer questions. Most of the calls I do when people block the time on my calendar, we talk about how your relationship with your wife is, your relationship with your kid. Jake, I don't know anything about your life. You mentioned your your wife sometimes has negative language. All I can tell you is that feminine energy likes to make problems bigger in order to solve problems, and masculine energy likes to make problems smaller. So I found I have to lean into that uh, into that negative energy with my wife, or or she's just going to escalate to make that problem bigger and bigger and bigger until I finally give up and solve it. So uh, maybe that would apply to your situation, maybe not. But if we were on a one on one call, I would have just kind of dropped everything and and dug into that. Like, how can I serve you? How can I provide you with value? My wife is a psychiatrist. I have a bachelor's degree in ministry. So I just love talking to talking to people about their relationships with their wife and their kids and stuff. I find that tends to be the thing that really determines the, the quality of your life. Who cares about money like that? That can come later. Let's let's fix our relationships now. So uh, those are some some of the ways people can connect with us. We're just here to offer value, uh, you know, any way we can. And whatever comes back to us, we're, we're happy for it if, uh, if people want to invest in the fund. That's awesome, Nick. Again, you know, uh, appreciate you so much. And, 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 you know, so many times that it was like, I, it's, you know, just hearing some of the clarity on some of those things. And, you know, again, I, I think that's one of my, you know, things that I have to do within being the, the, the husband and the father of our family is like, no, is I do bring that positive energy. I do bring and, and make sure that those things. And, and so I said, it's like, you know, my wife is awesome. She supports me in that yin to the yang, you know? And so it's like that somebody described me as, um, almost annoyingly optimistic, you know, almost and like, they're like right at the fringe of the thing. And I was just Amen. like, yeah, it's gonna work out, you know, if it, you know, it's like why. And, and part of that does, you know, and I'm digressing a little bit does like, you know, that most negative thing that you brought up earlier in the, you know, the interview, it was like, or the podcast, it was like, how is that to your benefit? And guess what? And there's like, and, and I've had now the, the blessings and the privilege to talk to so many people. It's like the, typically the worst thing that ever happened to you was actually the best thing that ever happened to you. And so then stop, you know, living your life of what other people's opinions, because guess what? It's going to just free you and open that, your mind. And it's like, who gives a crap what other people think, you know, they're all stuck in their own head, worrying about their own problems. And, you know, I love that you got the plaid. I love that you're actually exercising. Cause that thing, that car is insane. Like it, the insane yeah. mode. It is like, you kind of like, I don't know how this is legal. Like the, the, the way this thing drives where you're just like, this is not safe. Like this. No, it's actually a little bit of a problem because the kids love it. They call it the rocket ship. And it's kind of a fist fight in the morning over who I take to school versus who my, typically my wife takes two kids. I take two kids in the morning and it's like a problem. And and I, I'm not sure what the resolution is. I'm not getting a second Tesla, but uh, that's uh, the, the it, it's a great toy for kids. We'll never have to go to the amusement park again. It's uh, it's, it's it's definitely not gotten old yet. That's awesome. Well, Nick, I appreciate you. I, I hope that people check out your insights. Go uh, the Black Swan. You know, I have all that stuff in the show notes. And Nick, I appreciate you. Thank you. Have a great. Thank you, Jake. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. 
make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.